Hello, everyone, and welcome to the John Strzelecki Audio Experience. In this episode with Nathan Hurd from the Rich Life Lab, we talk about why I wear my hat everywhere, trusting the internal compass inside you, how generational trauma can play out in the long term. You're going to love that one. And taking a step into the unknown, even if it seems crazy. Enjoy. Can I ask, uh, I've seen you give so many interviews and you're always wearing that same <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, I might be mistaken, but I think that's a Tilly hat. Um, it is, yeah. But, but yeah, could, could you tell us the story of, of where you got the hat, where, where did it come from, and, and why do you wear it? What does it mean to you? Yeah, so uh, first of all, it is a Tilly. It's an amazing, and I don't, uh, I don't get paid by Tilly to talk about the Tilly, but I do talk about it, and this is a really good example of why when you do something well, that the world responds uh, positively to it. And so I had backpacked around the world in my early 30s. That was one of the most major life-changing things that I did. And during that trip, I had bought a hat on the streets of Beijing for about $2 and promptly went on to destroy it over the course of my travels. So I come back home. I need a hat. Walk into this outdoor outfitter store. They specialize in kayaks and you know, really good high-end uh, gear. And, and I said to the guy, I need a new hat. He said, have you ever tried a Tilly? Never even heard of a Tilly. So here, try this on. So he has me try it on. It's super lightweight. And I look in the inside of it and there's a, something inside that says, this floats, ties on, repels, rain, blocks UV rays, has a lifetime warranty, uh, comes with a four page owner's manual. And I'm like, what the? And it's, I think it even says they're 100% guaranteed for life. And uh, so I said, well, it fits really good. He, I said, how much is it? He said, it's uh, $75. Now, again, I bought my last one for two bucks in the streets of Beijing, and I was like, 75 bucks for a hat? Like, And he was like, listen, you try this hat, and if you are in any way dissatisfied, you bring it back at any time, I will buy it back from you. I said, all right. So I bought this hat. Nate, I have taken this hat to the depths of the Amazon jungle where it rains. Like, I live in Florida where you think it rains heavy. The Amazon, it's just like you can't even see when it's coming down. And this thing is like wearing an umbrella. I've smashed this into my backpack and taken it to Albania, Macedonia, all these crazy places. This is truly the most amazing hat ever. And the best thing, this is like such a great customer service story. So after about four years after I bought the first one, a little rip started to develop on the top. And so I called the customer service line. I said, listen, I hate to even ask this because I have totally gotten my money's worth out of this hat. Um, I said, but there's a little rip on the top. And she said, sir, say no more. What size is it? And I said, how would I know that? She said, well, look inside on the tags. I said, ma'am, the tags are worn out. Like, I can't even see what they say anymore. And she said, don't worry about it. She said, send it back to us, but please send it back priority mail. So, all right. So I go, I ship it back priority mail. It was like nine bucks back then to ship a priority mail. And uh, seven days after I, they receive it, I get a box in the mail. It is a brand new hat right? Perfect size for my head, the exact right type of hat. And I get a check for $9. And I am a fan for life. I've been a customer for life. Not only is it an amazing hat, but the service is amazing. And so to me, it's like a great example of when you do something that you love and you do it really, really well, that like the world will be your best marketing tool ever. And people are always like, well, wait, if they keep replacing your hat, how is it any good? Nate, I've probably bought 50 of these things for other people, for myself. Like when I go on media tour, I carry one that I wear when I'm just goofing off. I carry two that I wear on stages so in case something happens. Like I'm a fan for life. Wow. Well, that's, that's, that is a great story. You know, in business, it's, it's amazing how far excellent customer service and devotion to the experience your customers have will, will, will go. And it's, I mean, this is a great example of, you know, the a company that uh, gives you a hat that's warranted for life and, you know, creates such a raving fan kind of customer base that uh, that, that the word of mouth carries carries it farther than it probably could on its own or with all sorts of paid marketing. Yeah. And I wear it to your question of why do I wear it in interviews? Why do I wear it in podcasts like this? To me, life is a great big adventure. And so I, you know, I feel more like I'm in the midst of the adventure when I'm wearing it. If you if you and I hang out together and we go kayaking on a river down here, you're going to see me in it. If I'm out on the golf course, you'd see me in it. If I'm out fishing, you'd see me in it. So it, it is just something that I have pretty much on my head almost all the time when I'm in some adventure. Nice. Nice. Well, it fits your, uh, it fits your personality and, and what, you know, what I understand about your interest extremely well. So thanks for sharing that. Um, so let me ask you, I know that as an author, as an author who's, you know, been writing books for quite a long time, 
you get letters and feedback. And I know one of the great parts about, you know, putting work like this out there, at least in my experience, has been the feedback that you can get from the people who are impacted by your work. So um, can you share with us at the top here, what is, do you have an example of a letter that you've received that was especially impactful to you, that really brought full circle all the work that you've put out into the world? Yeah, two things immediately come to mind. So one is an in-person experience I had um, with a gentleman, and the other is the letter that you just referenced. So I'll tell the letter first, and then I'll, I'll talk about the other one. Uh, yeah, just very recently, we actually received this amazingly beautiful letter from a young 20-year-old kid. Um, she commented that she had gone off to university during the midst of the pandemic. She was so alone. Uh, you know, she missed everything about her friends, her family. She was isolated. And she just really lost her way. And she said she had never felt a depression uh, like she had felt during that experience. And so she decided to pull the trigger and went back home to see her family. And while she was there, she discovered the cafe on the edge of the world in the, in the library. So she literally put on a blindfold. It was like, I'm going to pick a book and read it. And she picked the cafe on the edge of the world and read it. And she wrote about what it meant to her and how the, from like the very first couple of pages, she started to feel lighter and there was a brightness about her. And she went on to just talk about it and what it meant to her. It was a really beautiful letter. And at the end, she said, I just wanted to let you know that your book kind of saved me. And uh, she just, you know, thank you for that. And, and I'm able to have this conversation now because of that. And, you know, I've, I've been there. I've been in those positions where you feel very alone. You feel like you're trying to figure out life. You don't have the answers. Um, it's sort of collapsing around you. And that is sort of the history of the cafe on the edge of the world. It's amazing how many people tell me it fell off the shelf in front of me or my friend recommended it to me at just the right time. Books have an energy. If you ever, if there's a book in your list, and I'd love to hear what that is for you, Nate, a book that has changed your life, my guess is that it found you at just the right time. And it's, I can't explain how it happens, but books have an energy of their own. And yeah, these are the type of things that just, they, they inspire me to no end. The other one that I was talking about, you made me think of it was, I was up in Quebec, uh, Montreal area, doing a book signing and a guy waited for a long, long time because uh, it was a very large crowd. And at the very end, he came up and he had tears in his eyes right in front of me. And he said, I want you to know that I'm, I'm here today because of this book. And he slid the big five for life across the table. And he said, uh, I was going to I was going to take my own life. He said my business was doing really bad and something happened and my business partner cheated and took all the money. And, and I looked at my family and I thought, how can I be such a disappointment to them? And he said, I was going to take my life. And he said, my friend saw how low I was and they gave me this book. And he said, I'm here today and I'm the father that I am today because I read that story. You know, th there's just nothing like that as an author of inspirational books to, to hear that that's the kind of impact that a book can have. So, yeah. Good stuff. It's really good stuff. Yeah, that's that's incredible. It's it's amazing how deeply books can impact if, if they're written at the right moment for someone in the right way or if they land in, in someone's lap, as you described. I'll tell you just one book uh, that impacted me recently, which is a book that was written back in 1989. Uh, but right now, for whatever reason, and I think you're you're describing this, I appreciate it, which is that I think everyone feels alone or more alone. Uh, or has been more likely to feel that way in the, in, the, in the recent year or two. And I've certainly had my own version of that experience as well. It's, it's not easy. And right now, yeah. you know, here in Maryland, it's cold, it's snowy, it gets dark early. And so um, I've picked up a book called The Seat of the Soul, which was recommended to me by a good friend. And it has a lot to do with inner journey and, um, you know, getting being aware of your own emotions and the differences between decision making that's rooted in fear or rooted in love. Yeah. And, you know, for me, that's been it's been a really a beautiful book and it's been really good timing. Um, so anyway, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I think I think there's a really interesting point there, which is that's an intuitive call. You know, when your friend says to you, I think this is a great book for you, that's them using their own deep intuition because they probably have a library in their head of a thousand books or more that they've read and they could recommend anything. But in that moment, they're trusting their intuition. And you, once it's been referred to you, you're trusting your intuition either to read it the first time or, as you said, in this instance, to go back to it. Uh, and that is, I think that's a hugely overlooked aspect of life, this trusting that inner guidance system that we have within us. And that applies to whether 
It's which book to read, which job to take, uh, you know, the way to parent if you have a particular calling to be a parent who stays at home more. If I was to recommend anything out of probably all the things that people ask me during your travels, John, life, the rest of it, like what's one of the most underused gifts that we have in front of us? It's trusting that inner guidance system. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think uh, it, it's it's a it's a skill that takes, you know, cultivation to. to yeah, it's learn. like a muscle, I find, you know, like yeah. if you've ever had the experience where uh you're you're about to head out and you're like i'm forgetting something like have you ever had that like you, you just know there's something there but you don't know what is there but you're forgetting something and then sure enough you get in the car you drive you're you know three miles down the road and you're like ah. <laughs> and then it hits you the thing you were supposed to bring with you that package you were going to drop off or whatever is the thing uh but i find that if you if you build that muscle so you know, great. So in that moment, you realize three miles down the road, oh, that's right. My intuition was telling me something. Uh, the next time you are thinking about it, and if you stop and pause for just a couple of seconds, you can't quite figure it out. And then you get in the car and you're just about to back down the driveway. And then you're like, oh, that's right. That package that I'm supposed to bring to somebody. Uh, but the more you sort of tap into that, then eventually you realize it before you even leave the house. And then you can get to the point where as you're thinking about your day, your intuition says to you, don't forget the package. Like it's like it's 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 sort of like learning a language. Are you able to process the call before you need it? Um, and I use it in sports all the time. I'm I'm a very active uh, athlete still to this day. I used to be a professional beach volleyball player, and it's amazing. The more as an adult, because I don't have the physical skills anymore that I used to have when I was in my 20s, but I can tap into these intuitive elements and I can see stuff before it's going to happen. Uh, and it's it's an amazing gift to use in all aspects of life. So do you find that you at this point are uh, able to almost automatically trust your intuition without questioning it? 100%, so much so that there are times when I really, really wanna override it because logically it doesn't make any sense what the call is. Mm -hmm. And I've done that before. I've done, it's funny because I don't know why, but one of the places that this really used to hit me, I used to be a, a golfer as well. I don't golf anymore, but I used to be a golfer. And I'd be looking at the shot, Nate, and I would say to myself, that's a nine iron all day long. And my intuition would be like, that's an eight. And I'd be like, no, it's a nine. I'm like, I can, I'm 135 away. I know that's a nine. And I would feel it's an eight. And I hit the shot. And of course, the club that I should have used was the one that my intuition was telling me to use. This happened so frequently that I stopped overriding it. And it was amazing how successful that was. Hmm. Uh, and so that's like a very specific kind of like non-important example. But then when I started to do it in everyday life, whether it would be a business decision that yeah, I had, I had done all the research. I had looked at all the analytics and I knew that the answer was yes. But my intuition was telling me it's not quite what you think it is. And I'd go back and I'd look again or I'd give it another day to think about it. And I'd find the thing that my intuition was talking about. So, yeah, I listen now with 100 percent. OK, if it's if I'm getting that call, I don't need to understand why I'm getting the call. It's worth listening to. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, it's especially true now with so much distraction it's that inner voice can be uh, dimmed down by all the totally. distractions of life. And it, it, is, it is amazing how, uh, how on point our inner, our, inner our, our bodies know, our, our bodies, our minds, they know what we need more than. Yeah, yeah. And there was a really, there's been tons of fascinating studies about this one. I can't remember the exact details of this one, but I'll give you the essence of it. And it was a computer simulation where you would look at cards coming up and the, the goal was to beat the beat the dealer. And so they would flip up a, a king and you would have to guess whether you thought your card was going to be higher or lower. But there was something in the system where eventually you could figure out what the patterns were and you could figure it out. And so they, they put sensors on people that would measure their heart rate, that would measure their um, different biometrics to determine whether they sort of had figured it out or not. And then they would let the person play the game and play the game. And I think it was like after about the 300th turn of the cards, the person could explain why they knew how they had figured it out. The They were actually winning at about the 200 mark. So even though they couldn't quite explain what they had figured out, they had explained something ahead of time. Their intuition, which was reflective of the biomarkers, had figured it out at like the 60th card. And you're like, well, I can't even explain how that happens. But the, the point is that it's there. And the more you use that in life, just the easier life gets. Oh, wow. Wow. 
All right, I'll try to find that study and maybe we'll link it uh, link it to this video. Yeah. Uh, and audio. Um, all right, great. Well, listen, I, I think uh, one of the things I admire so much about you is that you have cultivated this, uh, this sense of trust uh, in yourself. And I know you've been through, you've had many experiences throughout your life that have led you to be uh, more trusting. And, and a lot of these decisions were big decisions that you, where you made some really bold choices. So um, if we could maybe talk just a little bit about how this all came to be. So I understand you grew up in Illinois. Can you tell us a little bit about your youth and, uh, you know, what your first, what, how that led you to your kind of your first professional aspiration? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did. I grew up outside of the Chicago area, so I can uh, I can appreciate your Maryland comment about the cold, because that is exactly why I fled. Uh, right. Uh, I, you know, I was, I mean, I was an athlete growing up as a kid. I was a good student. I did not have a ton of self-confidence. Uh, you know, I was, I was a good athlete, but I could have been a great athlete had I have had the self-confidence. Um, so I, I sort of went through the, the experience of school. I didn't really understand school. I, I felt like I could miss half the days and understand just as much. And so I was one of those that was uh, probably a teacher's worst nightmare. Well, why do we need to know this? Like, <laughs> how is this relevant to the rest of my life? And they hated that type of question. But I just didn't get it. I didn't see where the train was heading. And as part of that, I didn't see where my life was heading either. I didn't have a I wasn't one of those kids that knew I want to be a, you know, some 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 kids know I want to be a doctor. I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a driver of a train, whatever. I didn't have that tremendous awareness. So I got to my senior year in high school and they said, so where are you going? Like, <laughs> this is the time you have to make a decision. I didn't know what I wanted to be. And I saw the movie Top Gun, uh, if you remember that from way back then. And I was like, OK, that looks pretty freaking awesome to be competing against the best of the best. I love that idea to be pushing yourself to be the best of the best. And, you know, I wanted to be an adventure. I was an adventure in my core. And I wanted to be an adventurer. And I was like, okay, this flying thing sounds really good. Because the little bit I knew about flying was if you eventually become an airline pilot, you get free airline tickets to go see the world. And if you structure your schedule the right way, you can like work three days on, four days off, and then four days off, three days on again, which meant you just had eight days off. And I knew of no other career that you could do something like that. And you made good money. So it seemed like a good call. I didn't know anything else that sounded more appealing. And so I decided that was going to be my path. And so... Crazily enough, in terms of the, the configuration of the universe cons conspiring to assist, like two weeks later, someone was coming to my little high school in the, Illinois, the suburbs of Illinois talking about a school called Embry-Riddle in Daytona Beach, Florida. And Embry-Riddle is one of the top aviation universities in the world. So I was like, what are the odds? Like, I just have this thought that that's what I want to do. This person is coming. I talked to this lady. She was awesome. She's like, yeah, have you ever been to Florida? I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, my family takes one vacation a year. We flee the cold in February. My parents take us out of school. We go to Florida. She's like, well, this is where you'll be in school, Florida. And I was like, OK, this sounds like Nirvana. And so I did. I went down there. I had a fantastic career down there. I worked my ass off because uh, I didn't have much money as a kid. I, I, I was working jobs while I was going to school. Uh, you had the deal at my university was if you took more than five classes, so more than 15 credit hours, everything above that was free. And so I literally would take 21 credit hours, which is almost a two times full time student because 12 credit hours is full time. I was taking 21 credit hours. I literally had a perpetual nightmare. I'd walk into a final and have no idea what was on the test because I hadn't been to class. Um, but I did it because I didn't have money. And so I worked through it all. Ended up getting this amazing internship with United Airlines in my last second to last year there. Did all that. Nate, I was poised to be driving a Corvette with the top down, a pilot for an airline. I get my shot and I find out that I have a heart condition nobody's ever diagnosed before. Wouldn't be diagnosed until I was 32 because they don't give you this particular test as a pilot until you're 32. And in one day, I go from thinking I am on top of the world to I am under the bottom of the bus. I have no clue what the heck I'm doing and I'm being run over by the bus. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I, I have a, a follow-up question on that. And you made me think of something else that I'd love to uh, hear your thoughts on. You know how, at least in my experience, it's easier for me to connect the dots when I look backwards in my life. I can see mm. how piece together. But it's very hard in the, you know, as, you're, as you're living in that moment to see how things are connecting. 
And I wonder if you've ever thought about or discovered or have a stronger sense of where that uh, lack of self-confidence early on came from. And, yeah. you know, did, did you have you ever looked back to, to was it anything about your childhood that stuck out or anything like that? And and how did you pivot uh, ultimately to, you know, have the sort of courage to go out and, and aspire to become a, a fighter pilot? I mean, that's a big that's a big leap. Yeah, you know, I think most of most things like that, like lack of self-confidence come from the way in which you are raised. It could be the environment, not necessarily something that your parents did or didn't do. It could be just you grew up in a big family and you got to figure things out on your own. And they just because there's so many kids, they don't have time necessarily to give you something that you with the type of brain that you have or the type of emotional connections that you require. So. I don't know. I was just missing something. And I read a great book one time talking about education. And they said, if you help a kid learn to be confident in anything, they will become confident. They have the potential to become confident in everything. So find something that that kid in your classroom does particularly well. It can be something stupid, like they can stand on, you know, they can sit upside down on their head or whatever, but find something and praise that and reward that. And that will give them the confidence to do other things and try other things. Um, it's a great question. And now as I'm thinking about it and listening to my own intuition, there is a crazy story in my family's past, which I think is tied to it. And so depending on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go, I will start the story um, and you can cut me off at any time. But uh, I remember when I was six years old, we used to have a major family Christmas party and my, my parents would invite like 60 relatives over to our house and it would just become like claustrophobic in there, but everybody loved hanging out for the holidays, et cetera. And my grandmother, who uh, was an immigrant to the United States. Uh, she used to make these desserts called hushtiki, which is a very traditional Polish dessert. And it's loaded with powdered sugar. And when you're a six-year-old kid, which I was at the time, if you eat this thing, you can inhale at the same time you take a bite and it creates this funky, weird sensation that is just perfect for a six-year-old. So I love this dessert. And that we used to call my grandma every night. And so after the Christmas party is over, we call grandma and she says, how was, did you, do you have a good time at the party? And I said, I loved it, grandma. And I'm so happy because there's so much hush sticky left over. And so I talked to my grandma, my sister talked to my grandma. And then like 20 minutes later, my dad comes up to my room. He says, Hey, you got to call grandma back and apologize. Apologize. What, what do I need to apologize for? And she said, well, you told her that nobody liked her hush sticky. Like, what? I don't remember that. I said, oh, well, you got to call grandma back and apologize. So I distinctly remember this, Nate, which is crazy because I'm like 50-some years old now, but I'm six years old. I call back my grandma. I said, no, no, what? I'm sorry. I said, and basically I learned that she was very deeply offended because I, I had said that nobody ate her hushtiki. Mm -hmm. So this, like, I don't know what the heck this means. I'm six years old. So, Nate, like 20 years later, I learned the backstory of what this was. And I'll tell you how this may then ripple forward to my life. So she, her mother died when she was very, very young. They lived in tenement housing in Chicago. Her father passed away when she was five or six years old. So she's there in tenement housing, six or seven brothers and sisters living in this little two room place. You can hear through the walls, the wind is whistling through in Chicago. And her brothers and sisters gather and decide whether or not they should put her in an orphanage. And she is, again, a little six, seven year old kid and she can hear through the walls and she can tell which brother and sister said we should put her in an orphanage and which one said we should keep her. And her oldest brother, who was only like 20, 21 at the time, said, you know, under no circumstances is a member of this family going to be put in an orphanage, no matter what it takes. Right. And she loved him with all her heart and, and would have done anything for that brother. Her whole life, Nate, she was desperately trying to prove that she was worth having around. Mm -hmm. And it all tied back to that moment when she was six years old. My father is gone now, he passed away earlier this year, but when I look back through that timeline, I see the same behavior in him. It was a desperate need to prove that he was worth having around, constantly trying to add value in any way, shape or form. And I think these things can be generational, you know, because whether you realize it or not, these behaviors that you're brought up in can be subtle things that you just accept as normal because you don't know any difference. And so if I had to guess, I would guess that some of that was part of what was inside of me, that uncertainty, that fear that I wasn't sufficient enough, um, going back generations to, to her experience as an immigrant child, um, which is crazy when you think about it. But
I think probably most of us have stuff like that that is part of our behavioral traits that it's tied back to something way bigger than just us. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. What a perception. I, I, I completely agree with you. I think a lot of, a lot of times there is a moment or, 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 or many moments, but certainly in many cases there are, you know, certain periods in life which greatly influence how we view the world after that. And it, it, you're right. I mean, as a father, John, and I know you're a father as well, like I think about the insecurities that I carried with me throughout my life into adulthood. And, you know, whether or not I heal those insecurities, I take the time to actually look back and try to figure out where, they're, where they came from and heal them today. Yeah. Uh, that really does influence how, I, how my kids perceive me and how insecure I am, you know, directly or indirectly around them. And I think you're, you're, you're dead on, which is that we can inadvertently display this inse- these insecurities that can, be, uh, that can be passed on. So, it, I mean, it's, a, it's a, such a good point. Yeah, and as you said, I think one of the great goals of life is to be the participant as well as the observer to our own existence. And what I mean by that is if you can be in the midst of a conversation and sort of be aware of the way you're thinking, or if you can be in the midst of a situation, but be aware of the thoughts and the emotions and the sensations that you're feeling in that moment, that gives us a chance to correct the type of things that we don't think are getting us in the direction that we want to go in our life. And so, yeah, that's not a trait that I would want myself to have ongoing, this desperate need to constantly be feel like I'm okay to have around. Like you got to get to a point in life, in my opinion, anyway, that you know that you're worth having around, that you're confident enough in what you contribute to the world or your family or the greater community at large, that you can just go through your life being the person that you want to be, whatever that is, and feel like, yeah, I'm I'm adding enough value. I'm worth having around. And I can walk into a room of people and not feel self-conscious about who I am. And so if you're able to be the observer as well as the participant, you can identify when those things come up and you can say, well, where do they come from and what can I change or what can I try to change, at least in the short term, to make me the kind of guy or the kind of woman that I want to be. And and the whole goal of that, of course, is to then live the life that I want to live. I can't be a really good adventurer without self-confidence. And, you know, I remember one time I was in Peru, they asked, I was in, (laughs) this is a crazy story, but I was in Peru, I was wandering around by myself, backpacking around, and I came across this little village and I was looking for good fishing spots. So I stopped at the rafting place and they said, well, it's not really the season for fishing. I said, but we just got these new kayaks and we're a rafting company. Nobody here knows how to use a kayak. You want to take us down to the river? Because uh, I, I guess somewhere in the conversation, I'd mentioned that I was a kayaker. I'd seen them outside. I can't remember. I was like, sure, I'll, I'd love to. So these guys jump in a raft. I jump in a kayak. We're shooting this river. I've never been on this river, Nate. And uh, it's a class four, class five. And I don't speak very good Spanish at that time either. And so we're going down the river and they're like, all right, you take the lead. And I'm like, all right, I'll take the lead, but I've never been on this river, but I've been on enough rivers that I know how to like watch the train, watch the rocks. And so we're sort of approaching this thing and all of a sudden they're screaming at me and I don't understand what they're saying. And I finally realized I'm supposed to be on the right side of the river because what's coming around the bend is going to be really, really bad. Uh, But like if I didn't have a degree of self-confidence in that situation, I'd be dead right now. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, and so in order to be the adventurer that I want to be and live the life that I want to be, I, it's critical that I allow myself to look into that soul and say, what's not quite there and what do I need to do to get it there to live the life I want to live? Oh, that's a, what, a, what a great story. And I know that that's, <clears throat> that only scratches the surface of your, your uh, amazing adventures. Um, well, I'll tell you what. So let's, let's, let's keep talking about how, you know, how this all came to be. And, and you said you, you found out that you – you were applying to become a, a fighter uh, pilot, and you found out um, near near your aspirations to become a pilot that you had a heart condition. Talk about if you could, because frankly, John, I mean, uh, I've talked to you, you know, a few different times offline, and and here it's very clear that health is a is a huge priority in your life, and it allows you to be as adventurous as you are. How did that news of the heart condition? affect you then and and how did you uh think through what your next steps were going to be and how do you how you were going to continue to uh pursue you know a life that that was uh inspired yeah i mean it was devastating because i i started working when i was 12 years old doing physical physical jobs manual labor i i didn't really have a good sense of how to 
do well in terms of earning income. I just knew work hard. And so, you know, I did, I'm not a huge guy physically. And so I was 12 years old carrying concrete blocks that they were busting up the roadways and, and had to move the rock, uh, doing other stuff that I, it was just crummy, shitty jobs. But that's what I knew as a way to make money. And I'd invested every, at every cent I had made in this dream of becoming a pilot. And so literally on the day that I received that letter, because basically the condition I had uh, at the time, it only affects one out of 100,000 people. So it's very rare. And it only matters if you want to be a pilot or an astronaut, because what happens is if you're so this is what they tell me. And this is why it was so debilitating when I heard it. Nate. So I learned the news. I said, well, I don't get this. Like I've been an athlete my whole life. How can this possibly be? And they said, well, no, it's this thing where your heart sends an electrical impulse. It's not something that you would know or feel. It's not like a heart murmur or something where you'd feel palpitations. I said, yeah, but I've been an athlete my whole life. I've pushed myself physically strenuously. It's I've never had a problem. They said, well, no. What it is, is if you were in an airplane and the airplane lost all its engines and you were in a free fall, if you were lying down, your heart would probably not be able to send the impulse in the same way that it needs to. And I looked at him, Nate, and I said, listen, if I'm the pilot and we've lost all the engines, what the hell would I be doing laying down in that moment? That's like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. They said, you don't understand. Now that this is on your record, the insurance is never going to cover you for an airline because this, in the event that something ever happened and you were the guy at the controls, that airline would have a court case that they would have to battle. They just said, for insurance reasons, they're never going to cover you. Your career is over. Oh and I was just, yeah, I was like, this, this doesn't make sense. I'm a good guy. I've done everything right. I've worked since I was 12 years old for this dream. This is just not fair. And for the next year after that, I was just massively depressed. Honestly, it was just crushing because that was it. Everything had been invested in that dream and uh, that dream was dead. And it was dead because not because of me. That's what bothered me so much. It wasn't that I screwed up. It wasn't that I did something wrong. It wasn't that I hurt somebody. It was just taken away from me because of something that I had no control over. To your point, Nate, when you look back and you can connect the dots, if I had become a pilot, if I had become an airline pilot, I would not be the guy that I am today. I would not have ever written a book. I would never have the chance to travel the world um, speaking people, meeting people. I would never have had that guy stand in front of me and talk about the big five for life and the fact that he had decided to not end his life. He had decided to be the father that he was and to still be there with his kids because of that book. None of those moments would have ever happened. And I will tell you, Nate, I would not trade this reality a thousand times over for the reality of being a pilot. So for whatever reason, the universe had something different in mind for me. And I do believe that there is something bigger in play than just you're born, you live your 28,900 days and you die. I don't think that's it. I think that there is definitely a bigger, like in the cafe on the edge of the world, the first question there, why are you here? Like, I think there's definitely something bigger at play. And for whatever reason, I went through that experience to prepare me for something else. But my destiny was not to be a commercial airline pilot. It was not to be a military fighter pilot. Wow. Wow. And, and you know, the, the fact that you were just able to keep moving forward. In fact, I, I believe after that, you ended up going to business school, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Is that right? Could you, t could you tell and, and share with us um, what was that application experience like? like? How did you decide originally to apply? And then what happened? And, um, you know, I know we talked offline and you had mentioned a letter you wrote and I'd, I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> the letter. Yeah. So, so, I mean, yeah, so, so I found out, uh, and found out that that dream was never going to happen. And like I said, for about a year, I was just in a fog. I was just incredibly depressed. I couldn't figure out what I was going to do. Had no concept of what my future was going to be. And then I decided that, uh, I was going to be a teacher because I thought if I'm a teacher, at least I have my summers off. And so I started taking, I was working full time at this just crappy job at a university doing accounting work. Um, I had a, in addition to my aviation training, I had a, a, a backup degree in business uh, because I, I had some crazy thought in my head happen earlier when I was a freshman in, in college. I was playing basketball and a guy hit me with his elbow on the eye on the top of my eye and it cut it pretty good. And I was like, 
wow, like if something ever happens to me, I better have a backup plan. And so I got a second degree in business. And so thank God, because uh, here I had a degree that I could actually use, because if my only degree had been in aviation, then I really would have been sunk. I guess those 21 um, and so, well, yeah, yeah. That's what those 21 credit hours will do for you. Um, and so I got this, I just applied in the paper, got this crummy accounting job at this university. It was a horrible job. I worked in the basements. My life was miserable. And, uh, I was shooting hoops in the driveway at my parents' house one day and my neighbor came out and he was uh, president of a small little savings and loan. And he said, what are you going to do? And he's, he had known me since I was a little kid. And I said, I have no idea. And he said, you should think about going back to business school. I was like, man, I just, I can't imagine going back to school. <laughs> I mean, I was a really good student. I worked super hard. I got great grades, but school was just not my thing. And he's like, I, I really think that's what you should do. And honestly, Nate, I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know why you would go to get an MBA. Uh, but I was like, all right, I trusted this guy. He had good advice. And, and uh, so I was like, all right, maybe. So I took the GMAT. I did really good on that. And then I only applied to one school. I applied to Northwestern University because that's where I was working as a crummy little accountant. And uh, I promptly applied. I got the letter back saying that you were not accepted. But it said in the letter that if you feel you've been uh, rejected for for an appropriate reason, then you can you can call us. Or if you feel you've been inappropriately rejected, you can call us. We'll tell you what it is. So I called. And the person said, well, we don't think you have enough practical work experience um, to be part of the MBA program because we're a program that it's really critical that all the students have something to offer the other students. <laughs> so, Nate, I, I have that conversation. Now, you have to sort of keep in mind what my year had been up to that point, right? I mean, the dream had been taken away. I'm working at this crappy job. My life is horrible. And so they said, if you, but if you think we're wrong, you can write a letter to the university. So I, I wrote this letter to the university. And this was the biggest FU letter that has probably ever been written in the history of FU letters. It was, I, mean, I literally think it started with, oh, so you don't think I have enough practical work experience, right? And then it went on to talk about, have you ever flown in an airplane with people's lives at stake? Have you ever flown an airplane where there was ice over the windshield? You had to fly it sideways down the runway in a Chicago winter so that you could land the plane so that... And it just went on and on and on, right? Have, did you start working when you were 12 years old, Karen Conker? Like, it, it was not a good letter. But it was just, I had just reached that point where I was just, I just lost it. I, I just couldn't believe there was just one more thing going against me. You know, because I had the grades. I had the GMAT score. I did have the practical work experience, but they didn't know anything about being a pilot. And so I sent it, never, ever, ever expecting to hear anything back. But I, I guess to some degree it was cathartic. And uh, so then I, I, I start focusing on trying to become a teacher. I take classes. I'm working full time. Six months later, I get this. Six months later, I get a letter in the mail saying you've been accepted into the evening program for Northwestern University's MBA program. Uh, you're in for the fall. So I show up to my first class. And I walk in the classroom and th there's a whole bunch of students there and they're talking about being number one. And, uh, you know, despite the few years when Northwestern had a somewhat decent football team, Northwestern is not number one in anything sports related. So I knew it was not that. And I was like, what what are we number one at? And they're like, number one, they open up, I think it was Business Week. So Business Week and these other uh, magazines will rate the top business programs in the world. And so Northwestern was the number one ranked business program in the country. Nate, I only applied to one school. I only applied to there because I worked there. Like I didn't even know they rated at the programs. I was, you know, and so I really do think that where the universe like yanked the carpet underneath me in terms of the pilot dream, this was like, okay, clueless guy, here's a present for you on a silver platter because this is going to change your life. And it did because you get an MBA from Northwestern University or any of the top, top programs and all of a sudden, it opens doors into careers and opportunities that never would have been there for me had that not been the case. So, yeah, I had one yanked out from underneath of me, but this was the gift on the silver platter. You know, I I, I want I want to continue that thought, and uh, I just wanted to comment that you, you know you made me think of something which is an experience I've had myself, which is sometimes the amount of pressure that we find ourselves under psychologically and through our experiences becomes so immense. And it's so painful that it's like the final straw and it just all like all everything inside just explodes to reject yeah. the, the reality of the circumstances. And, you know, the irony, as I listen to your story of 
them, you know, the, the reason that they gave you, which was you didn't have enough practical experience. You had tremendous practical experience as you outlined in the letter, but also you were employed by that university. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it just striking. And just out of curiosity, did you ever, have you ever found out what it was about that letter that hit a nerve that? No. And it's, it, yeah, it's funny at the time that it happened, I just was so grateful that I was, I, I don't even think I realized at that time what that gift was going to be coming back to me. And I probably didn't realize it until I'd been out five years after getting the degree. Um, but yeah, to this day, one of my uh, regrets is that I did not have the wherewithal to go back and find who that person was and to say thank you. And uh, yeah, in this, just having this conversation with you, it makes me think I should contact the university and see if, because maybe that person is still there. Like maybe they were, you know, a 28, 29 year old like I was at the time and maybe they're still there and, and they should know. They should know how that completely changed my life on a personal basis. And then the net impact of that, of course, is the millions of people out there who have read the books that have had a positive experience with that. Like this man or woman is a part of that story. Had they not have had the courage to see through the pain and the stupidity of the content of the letter, to see that this was a guy who we should have in the program, I really don't know where my life would have gone without that. So yeah, yeah, they deserve a huge props for that. You know, it's it strikes me, at least listening to the story, not having read the letter, but it strikes me as the letter of a fighter. And I think <laughs> the admirable quality, right, is is to uh, my, my just two second experiences. I remember uh, being told early on in my career that I was not I did not have the talent and the skills for a particular job. And it was partly because I was young and I was irresponsible and you know, not as professional as I probably should have been. And I remember being told this and in that moment, everything inside me rejected that notion. And all of a sudden I just started listing off all the reasons clearly and crisply that I felt I was appropriate <laughs> for this job. And, and I ended up, uh, you know, going on to, it ended up going on to, to have a pretty successful career. So um, anyway, I, I relate, I relate very much. So, well, well, and I think that, I think that there's times in our lives where this is like that defining moment. So, you know, thinking back to where we've, what we've talked about and who I was prior to that, I did not have that tremendous amount of self-confidence. And actually to some degree, writing a letter like that requires a great deal of self-confidence because if you were in the position where you're just like, I'm not worthy, you know what? They're right. Um, you you can't sit down and write that letter. And so, I in, in the book that I wrote called Life Safari, I talk about a theory that I have on life, and it's told through the, this amazing character called Mama Gombe, this incredibly wise African woman. And she says maybe life is prior to being born. You look at the big board of options, and you pick the challenges that you think will most challenge you in life, the things that you would love to try and overcome. Because in that moment, you're in your spirit form and you realize like life is infinite and it's it's just a game. And so you pick these challenges like lack of self-confidence or challenging childhood or whatever the things are. And then you're born into the physical form. And part of the goal of life is to try and remember what those challenges were that you picked because they're going to be around you all the time. Identify what they are and to get beyond them. And that when you get beyond them, that is when you really have the chance to grow. And so you in that moment, in that meeting where someone says to you, no, I don't think you're ready. Like that was your defining moment. It's like the movie in the, it's the moment in the movie where you hear the bum, bum, bum. Like is the character going to rise to the challenge, you know? And, and you did. And in my case, writing the letter, I did. And like, it's interesting because those can be the defining moments in life where you suddenly turn the corner and all of a sudden there are possibilities in front of you that never would have been there without that moment. Yeah. I, I love that. I I um I see that and appreciate that so much about the way that you live your life. And I think it's it's completely true that our greatest challenges, our greatest adversities, our greatest adversaries uh, are our greatest teachers. And you know the, the things that can help to sculpt who we become the most. So um, so I, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Well, I I actually would love to hear more about you know, who you've become today now that we've, uh, I think this has been really, really interesting. So thank you so much for, for taking us through uh, how things came to be. So what happens when you go to, how did you ultimately become an author? What was the transition from where you were 
And uh, as I understand it, you made a big decision there. So we'll take us through that decision-making process and then how, how you became an author. Yeah, so after getting my MBA from Kellogg, uh, it just opened up an unbelievable list of opportunities for me to do. And what I ended up doing was becoming a consultant. And so I would travel the country and they would they would send me into an industry I knew nothing about and say, okay, so it's Thursday night, we're bringing you into this industry. Monday morning, we need you to present to the board of directors. You need to be an expert on corrugated boxes or farm equipment or whatever. And this was something I was particularly good at because the way my brain works is I could connect the dots on things and say, oh, well, look, interestingly, because you guys are doing it this way, but in the in the grocery industry, they do it this way. And if you did it more like radio here and like, what would your world look like if, you know? And so I was really good at getting smart about something fast and I was really good about coming up with creative potential opportunities. And so I was great at it. My firm was a great firm. They treated us very, very well. Um, but after five years of that, I was looking at people that were 10 years older than me. And I was saying, if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm gonna be that guy. And is that the guy that I wanna be? And it was pretty obvious to me that the answer to that was no. Um, there, I just had this calling, Nate. I had this this inner drive that I wanted to go do something more adventurous. I wanted to see the world. And so in my early 30s, I decided to do that and left everything behind, left the career, um, rented out the house, sold almost everything I owned, went and backpacked around the world for a year. And you know, when you do that when you're 18, people are like, oh, great job, great. I mean, you're gonna love that, that'll change your life, good idea. When you do that after you're finished with your college degree, they're like, fantastic, take a gap year, man. You definitely wanna do that before you start working. You're gonna be working your whole life, go do that. When you do it when you're 32 uh, and you're in sort of like the high point of your career, people will say, are you flipping nuts? <laughs> That's crazy, Why? What, what are you thinking? You know, you should be at this point having a family. And, and so yeah. uh, the world is not so uh, encouraging at 32 to go do something like that. But did it anyway, and it was a life-changing experience. It was everything that I had dreamed about, uh, to, to travel to these ex exotic places and to meet people and see their life and see their worlds. It was life-changing. When you're in Vietnam and you're, you're walking through the ruins in Vietnam and there's a band of four people playing these handmade string instruments and you're looking at them and they all only have one hand or one leg and it's because they, their hands or legs are blown off with a, a landmine. Uh, like these are things that change you forever. Like you, you don't look at your life. You don't look at the way, the luxuries you have, the way in which you live the same way. I remember I was in, uh, I think it was in Cambodia and, and this little girl was about seven years old and she's cutting pineapples and trying to sell them to tourists. This kid's using a blade that I would be afraid to use. And she's like, right. And I'm thinking to myself like, wow, like this, why isn't this kid in school? And she's like, and she's a great saleswoman. Like she's like making the pitch and, and delivering the product. And I'm like this, this kid is like, she'd be a CEO of a company if she was raised in America with that kind of drive, that kind of perseverance, that kind of spirit. And here she is just trying to make it to have enough money to give her family to, and she's not even going to school. So this changed my life completely. Uh, my perception of the world and, and what was out there. I came back from that experience and had a 21 day stream of conscious experience uh, where the story of the cafe on the edge of the world flowed through me. It was very much trusting your instincts. I had never written anything before of length. Uh, I had no like dramatic life plan to be an author, but something inside of me, my intuition said, sit down and start typing. And I did for 21 days. And what is in the cafe on the edge of the world is almost word for word what was on those pages at the end of the 21 days. So. I would love to tell you that there was a grand master plan, Nate, um, but to the contrary, it was one of those where you can't start on the second great adventure until you're willing to step into the unknown of the first great adventure. And so the first great adventure for me was to go backpack around the world. The second great adventure of becoming an author was something that as much chose me as I chose it. So I think it will be very instructive for people listening and watching this to understand uh, what went into that big decision? Because you're right, I mean, you said it perfectly that sometimes society or your family or your friends or your social network or the culture, you know, it gives us pressure that we shouldn't do something that maybe our heart feels we should. And I think a, this big decision is instructive for any big decision. I mean, even, you know, yeah. should I retire or not? Or where, you know, should I... Uh, you know, should, should I, you know, start a business or, you know, you name it. So what was that big decision like? How did you actually get to the point where you, you pulled the trigger? 
Yeah. So let me jump to one of the topics that I opened with, which is what is my purpose this museum day? So this plays into it, although I didn't realize it until years later. But uh, in the Big Five for Life book, one of the most commonly quoted back to me stories or aspects of that book is something called Museum Day. And the essence of Museum Day is this, that imagine if every moment of your life was recorded, everything you did, everything you said, all the places that you went, the, the ways you spent your time. And then towards the end of your life, a museum was built to honor you. Only the museum would show your life exactly how you lived it. And so if 80% of your time was spent at a job that you didn't like or on things that didn't bring you joy, then that would be 80% of your museum. And there'd be kiosks and videos and big dioramas and all kinds of stuff showing you spending your time on these things that you didn't really enjoy. Uh, if you love spending time with your family or being an adventurer, whatever, but you only spent 2% of your time on those loves, then only 2% of your museum would be dedicated towards that, maybe just a few pictures near the exit door. And so imagine what it would be like to walk your museum at, at the end of your life. What would you see? How would you feel? What would that experience be like for you? And the major aha that I had, the huge epiphany was, imagine if heaven or the afterlife or however you perceive this the way life works, but imagine if that is actually you being the tour guide for your own museum for all of eternity. And that, although I didn't have the clarity of that in my, because I wrote that in the Big Five for Life book, which was a couple years after the trip, somehow inside of me, Nate, that awareness was there. And when I was looking at my life and I was looking at that person 10 years older than me in that job, in that lifestyle, that was not the museum that I wanted. And it definitely wasn't the museum that I wanted to be reliving every single day as the tour guide for my own museum. And so I think it was a combination of getting older. I think it was a combination of having that person there as a guide, a metric to say that's what it would look like in 10 years. And uh, I don't know. It just I just had gotten to the point where I couldn't do it anymore. And I was determined to pull the trigger. Now, I will tell you that sometimes the universe conspires to assist and so I had made a decision that in October of that year, I was done. I was going to quit. I was going to go backpack around the world. Uh, leading up to that was 9-11. Uh, Following 9-11 was the dot-com crash, right? Everything was falling to pieces, especially in the world of consulting. Because in consulting, when the rest of the economy falls into the tank, consulting is one of the first things that's cut. And so it didn't matter how much value we were adding. And so... Uh, my firm said, we're looking for people to go on furlough, people who are willing to take, because they, they thought this was going to only last three or four months. So they said, who's willing to go on furlough? You, you go on the beach, they call it in consulting, you go on the beach and uh, you take some time off, you can be at home. Uh, we'll give you partial pay, full benefits, but you're going to be on the beach. And uh, I had not been on the beach in five years. I had never had a break. And so I was like, sign me up. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll sign up for furlough. And they were like, no, can't do it because the client you're on is like a great client. They love you. They love the work that you're doing. And so, nope, not you. And I was like, wait, didn't you guys ask for volunteers? Like, <laughs> am I missing the definition of volunteering? Right. Like, nope, not you. So like three months later, um, next round of the economy does not recover. If you remember, like things did not bounce back. It was like we're falling farther behind. So three, four months later, like need another round of volunteers. I'm like standing on a chair. I'm waving with both hands. Take me. Nope. Client loves you. We're not doing it. So, okay, fine. Um, in the interim, they announced what was called, uh, it's like the president's contest. I can't remember, it's been so many years, but it was like the president's contest or something where anybody in the firm could submit an idea that was gonna be hugely beneficial for the firm. And if you won, you got a six week sabbatical to work on this idea and then you would come back and you'd present it to the board of directors in the, in the firm. And so I submitted this idea I had for a client intervention tool where it was this same concept that I used. So like, okay, Nate, you're in the grocery business, but what if you had to operate your business like a radio station? You know, what would your revenue streams look like? And I created this whole model for it. And so I submitted this idea. And so uh, I, I find out that I won out of 1,100 people. They're like, my idea the best. I said, you've got it. Now we're putting you on sabbatical. We're pulling you off the client. We want you to work on this idea. Great. I'm two and a half weeks into my sabbatical working on this idea. It's actually my bachelor party weekend. I'm on the golf course with my buddies and I get a phone call that says uh, from the head of HR and they said, hey John, uh, we wanted to let you know that we're going through a third round of furloughs. Anybody who is not currently being paid by a client, we're forcing on furlough. 
And I was like, let me get this straight. After volunteering twice and you guys not letting me go, I now have come up with the one idea out of 1,100 people that we think might be able to turn the ship in the direction that we want to go, and you're forcing me on furlough. I was like, this is the Dilbert cartoon of all Dilbert cartoons. Okay, sounds good. I said, what does this mean? They said, well, you're being forced on furlough. You get partial pay, full benefits, and just hang out. And this was February, and my plan was to retire, to call it quits in August, to just leave in October, sorry, October. And so here I was, you know, many, many months ahead of schedule, and the universe conspired, and, was like, and I was like, I'm going to go travel. And so I grabbed a backpack and went off and went for a year to see the world. Now, I think the big takeaway for that story is the importance of knowing where you think you want to be going and having the line drawn in the sand. Had I have not had the awareness, Nate, that I wanted to go do that, I think that moment would have thrown me for a massive loop. Um, I had so many friends who, who went through that experience and they had dreams too. They wanted to go build homes for the homeless in Guatemala. They wanted to start a different career, but they got so afraid when they were put on furlough that all they did was you know, up, upgrade their resume and send it out to 100 people and spend every day worrying about it. And you know, I saw them when I came back from my year of traveling abroad and I was like, well, how did you spend your time? They didn't do anything. You know? So you got to have a plan. And when the universe throws you, uh, you know, the high, the high, the high speed rail pass, it's important to have the plan because you're going to jump on the high speed rail pass and get there even faster than you thought you would go, which was certainly the case in my instance. That's amazing. Yeah, I love to hear uh, that in your story, how the dots ultimately connected and how the universe conspired. Yeah. You said. Yeah. So it's interesting when you, as you said before, looking back through the timeline and understanding why part of your experiences were what they were. So. Why did I start working when I was 12 years old and have that part of my experience? Because I developed a phenomenal work ethic. Like I would outwork everybody. What I didn't understand at the time was applying that energy in the right directions all the time. Like I was given opportunities to do things that would have been higher salary, higher income, even when I was younger. And I turned them down um, because I didn't have that confidence, but I had the work ethic. So that was the reason that that part of the dot, part of the story was there. Why the business school part? Because in that industry, I had to learn how to get super smart about things in days. Like I had to become an expert in days. And then I had to be able to analyze contracts and I had to understand spreadsheets. I had to look at the business model behind it. I knew some of that as a, a young entrepreneur, but I didn't understand it anywhere near to the depth that I would need it as I was about to figure out as an author. Why do most artists not make it? They don't make it because they don't have the side benefit of understanding the business of the art. And I had that. I was not just an author. I was a business person who also was an author. And so when it came time for contracts, I knew what I was doing. When it came time for negotiating deals, I knew what I was doing. Uh, and so it was a wonderful blend of the creative side of my brain with the, the left side of my brain, which could understand all of those things. And uh, so, yeah, uh, within the first year, I think the the copies had sold in 28 countries. I got picked up by a literary agent. Uh, it was on its first bestseller list within a year after that. I can't say it was all bells and whistles. I've been I've been rejected easily by over 200 publishers around the world because you know the book's in 43 languages, so you deal with publishers around the world. At least 200 have said no. Um, probably my funniest story associated with that is the book was actually on the bestseller list, and somebody who had not even gotten around to reading the letter and, and reading the the manuscript for the book sent me a rejection letter saying, I really don't think this will ever work. And it was already on the bestseller list. Like they didn't even know that. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, it was just a crazy uh, moving train at that point where it was all in, all, all signs were green, that there was something there. Um, people from around the world were buying it through a horrible website that I developed because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Uh, and we were getting amazing, I was getting, at the time it was just me, I was getting amazing responses. I was getting emails and letters from people saying how much it had changed their life. And so, yeah, at that point, all indications were green, which is the sign from the universe, like keep moving. Like there's flow there, follow that flow. Thanks for listening, everyone. This episode has been brought to you by the fantastically awesome JS Audio Team. Produced by the talented and so darn fascinating Larry Hodder. All right, everybody. Remember, life is short. Statistically, 28,900 days. So get out there and make this one a museum day. <laughs>